Yeah, I liked what you said the other day when we were talking about something and you were and you said, yeah, it's bad, but like not a lot of things are great. <laughs> Make more things that are great, world. <laughs> <laughs> oh wait, I I can make things that are great. Uh, great. Fuck. Creditkarma.com so that you can see all of your debt laid out before you and feel the crushing pressure of making tiny payments, possibly forever. No, but you still need to look at that stuff. It's super important. Just do a shot. You need to keep an eye on your credit. Creditkarma.com is not a sponsor for the show. This is Grilled Cheese and Gin, the podcast about womaning and realizing your changeable dream. This is episode five. Back to school. Me? I could never. Okay. I'm Jessica, happy Bachelor of Fine Arts in Theater with an R-E and not drama. And I'm Vicky. And I have a gallery wall with all of my degrees my wife and I hold. Welcome to the podcast. Grilled Cheese and Gin, the podcast where we talk about realizing your changeable dream while paying student loans, and we listen to women much more experienced than us about their zigzag path toward those moving targets. In this episode, we're talking about our higher education aspirations, conquests, and fumbles. We will also talk to PhD candidate Manda about going back to get her doctorate in education after teaching for 25 years. But first... Let's catch up. What the heck, Vicky? Don't you have enough to do? You're running for the board of directors at the co-op? Oh what my, is this? Oh, my God. Yes. I, I actually was sitting at my desk today at work going, why did I apply to do that? So, yeah, um, board of directors nominations are coming up, and I threw my hat into the ring, and I wrote this whole, like, why I want to be on the board of directors essay and everything which I don't even know if anybody will ever see it but I felt very like not important but like I felt very ready to take on this role so that I can learn about policy and governance and have like my first foot in the door and it's a nice thing to put on your resume it's also a nice thing to be like yeah I actually care about the company that I work for, and I also care about the community that I live in. So here's my thing about that. But I'm I'm literally like, what if I get elected? Then I'll have to do it. But it should only be it should only be like ten hours a month. Like it's it's one meeting a month, and then a couple of appearances. So I I should be okay. Yeah. 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 I I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I just keep saying yes to everything. But I want to be the person who says yes to things because for about two, two and a half years, I've been like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I've just been cutting all the crap that I don't want to do out of my life. And now I have to like add in the things I do want to do. Uh-huh. But I'm having I'm having a moment with this particular job of being like, do I want to do that or does it just sound good? So, yeah, <laughs> that's where I'm at with that. <laughs> Maybe. um you could do it for, like, how long are the terms? Aren't there limited terms? It's three years. Oh, okay. But you can, like, 
it's okay. You can always step down. Like there's always a way to get out of it if you can't do it anymore. And plenty of people do that. So, oh, so you're looking for a condo in LA? Yes. So uh, we are looking for a condo because houses are, we actually, okay, we did look at a house this weekend. Um, It was way the heck out there. So that was kind of a bummer because it was, it was off of Main Street, but you had to take like, two or three freeways to get there from our house, even though it was still technically the valley. And then you had to, you know, go through the suburbs of houses to get there. And it's California. So a lot of the houses were built in the 50s. The houses that you can afford are built in the 50s. So they're not in super great shape, but they're very cute. And the other thing is, is that they are not insulated at all. California is not known for insulating because they're like, it's warm here, except when it's cold here. So um, we were like, nah, maybe we pass on that. But we definitely wanted to check it out just to kind of see what the deal was. And then, um, we, yeah, we've been looking at condos a lot because they are more in the price range. That has been interesting because there are, again, so many of the buildings were built in the 650s and 60s so it's shared laundry facilities oh, uh, in a lot in many of them that are kind of in our price range then others of them are like we saw one yesterday that we were like well maybe we should put a bid on this but it this has like 800 square feet which is smaller than the apartment we live in right now and it's uh, it has stairs. It has an upstairs and a downstairs, but it, the place is just super compact. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's in a it's in a pretty it's pretty close to transportation, and those are the things we're thinking about right now. Mm-hmm. Close to transportation in a neighborhood that's walkable and kind of in the area where we are right now, so that it's really accessible to um, to the freeway because we kind of got lucky that way with where we are right now. So condo looking in LA. And it's it's also crazy because when we got here, there were open houses and you could go to an open house on Saturday and Sunday. And then maybe a week or a month later, something would go into contract after people put in bids. You had time. But like just in the last couple of weeks, because it's summer and this is always big realtor season wherever you are, because people are between school seasons mm-hmm. or, or school years. So they're looking to be established in a place before their kids have to start the new school year. Now it's like something goes on the market the day of people are putting in bids and sometimes the realtors are not, are they're just not even doing open houses anymore hmm. on the weekends. They're just like, nope, make an appointment with your realtor, come see the house. So it, and then it goes into a contract in like seven days. Oh my god! So it's still probably like a month or more in escrow. But yeah, they're looking at they're considering bids, and that's the situation we were when we left Vegas. But I thought, oh, that's just because it's Vegas. I didn't think that that was gonna kind of follow us here. Well, we want to know. We want to get to know the neighborhood and get to know the kind of the floor plans that are available or out there. Whether we could afford a house, you know. If we do, we want to drive out that far. It's really difficult when people aren't having open houses mm-hmm. because I don't want to. The other thing is my realtor lives in Marina Del Rey, which is like an hour and a half from here. And, you know, she'll go anywhere to make a sale, but she has to get a babysitter and 
she has to drive all the way out here. So I don't want to waste her time if I'm like, I'm not really sure that I like this house or it's, um, I could drive by and tell you whether I like the neighborhood or a lot you know, or not, you know, like I, I kind of want to do those things first, but if you need to put bids down, like the day that it's, that it goes online, it it's just makes it really challenging. And plus I also don't know kind of what, people are bidding things up as, you know, because it's competitive. So I don't know if people are adding another 10,000 on top of things or 20,000. Well, she'll she'll be able to like advise you on all of that stuff. But yes. just like walking into a house and being comfortable making a bid that day sounds like oh, I couldn't do it. It's too much pressure. Although Aubrey and I can walk into apartments like to rent and be like, yes, we're done. This is where we're going to be and hand the guy the check. So Maybe it would be the same if we bought something. Yeah. I, I'm i hoping that we hit that moment where we're like, oh, yeah, this place. Uh, it would just have to be – the difficult part is that it would just have to be on the weekend. Or I guess I, I look at something and I go, you have to come home early because we have to go look at this place today. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's. I'm sorry it's a Tuesday, but we have you have to get here by 4 o'clock or something. We're info to come. Tell me about your higher ed experience. Oh my gosh, you have a degree wall? Yes. So, I mean, it started off as just like, oh, where do you, where do you put your diplomas? And we came to the conclusion, we came to the conclusion that we wanted to put our degrees on the wall because we don't have like, we don't have the type of degrees that you put it at your office. Like we're not therapists and doctors or anything. So we put it up just to like see, okay, that's where our money is. Yeah, now we have a degree wall because we both have undergrad degrees. We both have master's degrees. And I, in fact, have two master's degrees. Put all the diplomas on the wall and then you put all the pictures of what you, um, you know, your, your graduation days and then your hats with your tassels and all of that crap. So, yeah, there's literally a, a gallery wall of degrees. But so my higher education experience has been I thought that's what you always did when I was in high school. I was being groomed to go to college. So I just knew that that's what I was going to go do. And I did have a moment. I was all set to go to a college up in Canada and I decided not to go like at the end of the summer after my senior year. I decided not to go and I took a semester off and ended up really regretting it and like freaking out and getting into the getting into the school that I was already pre-accepted to but like accepting my enrollment into Sierra Nevada College. For December so I went I, I enrolled a little late because I was I was unsure of where I wanted to go and obviously I didn't want to go to Canada <laughs> oh no no I well it was uh it was a Christian school and at the end of a summer working at a Christian camp I basically realized that I was I did not believe in God Oh, wow. <laughs> so, I mean, that that's a broad way of putting it. I still, like, th- I mean, it, that's complex and maybe for a different ep- episode. But, like, I could not, I could not proselytize to people anymore. 
Yeah. I was unwilling to pretend that this one version of Christianity was for everybody. Right. And so so I was like, you know, I don't think I really want to go to a Christian college and become a youth minister. That's not something that I can do the rest of my life. Wow. I didn't know that that was part of your background. Interesting. (laughs) So I went to Sierra Nevada College, which is the complete opposite end of the spectrum. It's liberal arts college, hippy dippy, like all that, all the fun feels. And I got my degree in English, which has served me well, has got me many jobs. I was fairly successful early on in my career. And then I decided that I wanted to throw all that success away and go get my teaching credential. <laughs> Cause I <laughs> still have, I still have it in me that I want to like teach youths. I would like to teach <laughs> the youths. <laughs> I just don't need to proselytize them. I will bring them the good news of grammar. <laughs> I love it. But, um, got my, my teaching credential started teaching in Las Vegas and hated it i didn't hate the teaching part like that i mean then that's like constantly the the truth that you hear from teachers is that i don't hate the teaching part i hate the being in a school part or i hate the bureaucracy part or i hate the administration or i hate dealing with you know parents or whatever but i didn't like the bureaucracy part because I I was being groomed to take on a position at the school that I was at right after my um first of all they wanted me right away like they wanted me to drop out of my program that I was in and just be an English teacher and do the alternative route to licensure oh so they they wanted me to stop doing my program in order to be a teacher Oh, right away. So that was a red flag right there that they, yeah. that they didn't want me to actually be a licensed teacher before they started teaching me. And they only had to wait. They literally only had to wait six months. I just had to do my it wasn't even six months. It was like four months. I just yeah. had to do my on the ground teaching, which is what I was doing there. So yeah. that was a that was a red flag, but I was being groomed by one of um one of the people that I developed a relationship with there. She moved to a different school and she's like you should take my position because we like I'm leaving at the same time that you're graduating, so it's perfect. I went to the pr- like I thought I was being groomed for this position and I basically thought I had it, so I went into like I scheduled an appointment with the principal and I said, "Hey, do you, when do you want to interview me for this position? Like, how do you want to proceed?" And he's like, "Yeah, you're not going to get that position." What? He's like, uh. "Yeah, I have I have plan I'm going to do something else with that position entirely." And so, yeah, I I was pretty much done with teaching after that point. I can't I can't wrap my brain around the public education system right now. Obviously, we need it. Obviously, we have like there's like this myth that the public education system doesn't work, and I'm just like, but it does. Like we have plenty of people coming out of the public education system who are doing just fine. We just need to actually fund it and actually give teachers what they need and actually help educators do what the hell they need to do because we're good at it and we actually want to be there like we didn't get our teaching degree for giggles like yeah 
Speaking yeah. of which, they're still recruiting people to Hawaii, so maybe I'll just go there at some point. Oh, <laughs> yeah. But then, of course, after I um, decided not to be a teacher, I decided I wanted to be a novelist. So I went and got my MFA in creative writing. So I, I might be a little bit problematically addicted to school so, uh, what did you do in school? <laughs> I guess I always wanted to go to like an Ivy League mm-hmm. school. Uh, I wanted to go to a school where uh, I probably would have been great at like Sarah Lawrence or Vassar. I just wanted to go to a place where I felt like there were a lot of other people who were super interested in education mm-hmm. and or not just education, but like learning things mm-hmm. like if like watching Game of Thrones last night, there's uh, this one character who goes to the Citadel and then, you know, you just read all the books and you learn all the things about medicine and Mm -hmm. about politics and about the history and magic or it's supposed non-existence or dragons and it's their supposed non-existence or whatever. I I think I would have been, I would have wanted to be a maester to some degree. I wanted to become a, I wanted to be a working actor. And so my idea at the time was that I would be a Shakespeare actress and work at Shakespeare festivals because I knew that you could get a contract for like three to six months working at a, a Shakespeare festival. And there were Shakespeare festivals all over the country. So going into college, I wanted to be, oh, and the other thing about Shakespeare is that it is, to some people's mind, very academic. Mm-hmm. Even though it is meant to be performed and not read, mm-hmm. there's a lot to read in it. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go to a school that had strong academics and sort of some association with Ivy League. The school I went to has no association with Ivy League, but it was a very old school. It's, it was established in 1775 by, I can't remember what the sect is at the time, like, or maybe the Dominicans or the order, but then it was taken over by the Jesuits. And it was established as a teaching college to mm-hmm. teach priests, then eventually became a super educational institution for for men. And then in the 60s, uh, allowed women to go as well. And so to me, I was like, oh, this is it has some like old stuff to it. And it was very social justice oriented, which I thought was cool. But my dad had also worked at that theater that was on the campus. And so he knew some of the people there. And so that kind of gave me a connection to my family, uh, which for some reason, when I was coming out of school, I was like, oh, that's nice. Like, these people will get me because they're uh, certainly all the professors there were at the academic level that I was interested in, but trying being torn between academics and theater and, you know, like theater is going to win out because that's where you're spending. That's where I would end up spending like all day and all night mm-hmm. working on things. And in the end, like I really wanted to be doing avant-garde theater, I thought, because uh, I had spent a lot of time in Edinburgh, Scotland at the Fringe Festival because um, my dad is a professor and had his school, he would always take students and I would go along. Um, and so we would go to the, the festival and perform there and then see tons and tons of shows and we would go to Stratford. And so I always thought, I, I want to be doing Shakespeare, but I want to be doing it in the very like Peter Brooks kind of fairy 
for lack of a better word, like arty farty. (laughs) And that was not a school for arty farty. I should have tried to apply to like Harvard if I wanted to go to arty farty or if I, I was sent applications to go to a school in New York, which would have been perfect for me, but nobody I knew had heard of it. So I wasn't like, there wasn't anybody to be like, oh yeah, that's a good school. You should go there. People were like, what are you, who, who, where, where is this? There's a lot of snow there. You're not going to like it. (laughs) For reasons, I did not end up going into Shakespeare from there, but I thought, well, I'll give it a second try. I should go to grad school because I, I thought I'll, I'll try this again. (laughs) Basically, (laughs) I will try this again. And I failed my auditions. Like I just completely face planted. And then I, it was funny, the auditions were in San Francisco upstairs at this theater company and downstairs was a bookstore, not associated, just Mm -hmm. like a borders books. And I went into the borders. I walked into the theater section, like between auditions and there was this book by David Mamet, which I'm, I'm not a big fan of him uh, these days. But in this book, he made a very salient point, which I it stuck with me. He said, don't go to grad school because and don't go to school for theater because all you're trying to do is please your teachers. Hmm. That's not the point. Theater is about pleasing the audience and getting things across to the audience. But the the overall point of it, why I was like, well, that is very true. Like you end up just trying to be what your teachers are telling you to be. And you have no idea whether that is actually appropriate for performance. Like mm-hmm. you end up kind of ruining your intuition about what is going to move people and what is truth because it becomes just educated right out of you. So even though I failed miserably in those auditions, I held tight to the idea that maybe this is a good thing. Maybe I'm holding on to something. I'm trying to hold on to some or find some kind of truth in myself. I also spent a year at home kind of doing postgrad work. And I wish it could be some sort of degree because it was it was an incredible year. I went to my dad's university and took three quarters which is basically a full year of this one directing teacher's class on directing. And it was, I learned so much like just, and and I had taken tons and tons of directing classes up until this point and acting classes. And he, he was the person that had inspired me to want to be more part of the avant-garde and, and really, really dig into story and kind of mise-en-scene and, the, you know, the genius of space and what's how space affects the audience and the characters. And it was it was a completely amazing, mind blowing year. And there's nowhere to put that on my resume or to like talk to anybody about because it's just basically like post grad work, but it's not really even post grad work because it's not like I was studying rats or something (laughs) like I just took some extra classes from this professor who, uh, who was amazing. And it, it was completely life changing. You couldn't, you couldn't put that on your resume studied under blah, 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 for three semesters learning the power of space. Yeah, I I should, I Mm -hmm. should probably put that on there. 
Um, because yeah, I mean, it was somebody would ask me about that. And then I would say all of this that I have just, you know, barfed on the microphone, like, this was life changing stuff. But it was very meaningful. And if that could have been something that I could have gotten a degree in, that would have been interesting, too. I'm kind of meant to apply to grad school again. I did end up living in New York and working for NYU and could have gone permanent and actually gotten a graduate degree from them, but decided to come home and get married instead. And and then all those years in Vegas, I was constantly like, I should really go back to school. I should really go back to school. But it was just the price of it was getting so high. And especially if your goal is to get out of there and be an actor, it just seems ridiculous. Uh, I had a friend say, if they're not paying you to go to grad school, then you shouldn't be doing it. And she was actually, she's a recruiter for a university, a major university theater program, like an arts, arts program. So that is why I have not pursued it, even though in every sense of the word, I love going to school. I love learning. I love arts, history, philosophy. I could just, I could, I could sit in class and do homework for the rest of my life. (laughs) See, yeah, you would fall into the same trap that I fell into (laughs) of like, oh, well, I found this other really niche thing that I now want to (laughs) study. All right. We are speaking with Amanda Gardner. She is a PhD student at Baylor University studying teaching and curriculum. Just go over a little bit. Like, tell me how you got there. So I, um, straight out of high school, I went to community college uh, for a couple years, um, did a semester in London, had fun, and then transferred into um, Sacramento State, California State University at Sacramento uh, and completed my bachelor's degree. And then from that, I earned a teaching credential and went to go teach high school English uh, up in uh, El Dorado County, California, outside of Sacramento. Had a, was there for four years. Got a little notice that said if I, because I'd been going to school continually just for fun, mm-hmm. and uh, had marked somewhere at some point that I was going to get a master's in English. And I got a notice from the English department saying that my, my credits would expire if I didn't finish my master's in the coming year. So I took a year off, went back to school and finished my master's and have a master's of English. Uh, wrote my uh, thesis on Emily Dickinson's fascicles with the, the proposal that each one of her fascicles is a tenet of her philosophy. Did that, wound up teaching in Egypt for a year, went to Pasadena for a year, and then Las Vegas for 12, which in my 20-year career puts me 19 years in the classroom with the year off of my master's. Did part-time faculty work at UNLV, uh, University of Nevada at Las Vegas, as well at um, CSN. Um, and on a lark, because I've been saying that I wanted to take the GRE, I took the GRE just to see how I would do. Mm-hmm. Um, and Baylor sent me an announcement, um, a request, phishing me, as did other universities, and I ignored them. Mm-hmm. Um, in uh, That was in the spring, and in August, I received an email from the graduate coordinator in the Department of Curriculum and Teaching for Baylor, uh, saying that there were fellowships available and yada yada, and I ignored her mm-hmm. and went in to teach because I had a few more years to move over on the pay scale. Well, I'm sitting in this faculty meeting, and my students... And, and if you're not in teaching, and I know you, you've experienced this, but for those of your listeners who haven't, it can be a bit um, soul-sucking <laughs> when you're sitting there. 
there's a, a meme that I have up on my wall that's in my cubicle now that says two teachers looking bored out of their skull in desks, um, and the caption reads, "If I die, I hope it's during an in-service, so the transition won't be so harsh." <laughs> <laughs> you know, and. I, I feel like you're even sugarcoating how very, very awful the in-services are. And they've, they, they used to not be that way. Like, I started teaching in 1995, and that was a different era. I, I actually, I was up to be a juror on a murder case, right, and it would have run into the start of school. Mm-hmm. And I, I was in the jury box, and I was so excited. And um, this judge, oh my gosh, she was harsh. So I made it in the jury box. I'm all excited. And she goes, and it says here you're going to teach in the fall. And I said, well, yes, ma'am. And she goes, or yes, your honor, or whatever. I, I, I don't know. I was scared, right? And she goes, and then she pulls her glasses down on her noses and glares at both of the councils and said, I know how important it is for teachers to be there on the first day. Both of my parents were teachers. And I don't think that either of you will have a problem excusing this juror, will you? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, no, your honor. Right. And I was excused and I was so disappointed. <laughs> but, but the respect that was given because of the profession I had chosen um, is no is is nowhere there anymore. That and what she recognized that has been left out of so many equations is that personal connection that each teacher builds with their students. There are school districts, and it's not just limited to to Las Vegas, but there are districts where you go into school and they will shuffle kids three or four weeks into it after a count day because they want to see what their numbers are so they can decide if they can hire more people or not because Mm -hmm. they always understaff, Mm -hmm. which which is ludicrous. One of my friends who teaches up in Seattle, she counted. There were 17 days taken away from instruction in the high school and I'm speaking from high school mm-hmm. um, for, for testing prep not even the test for test prep so the continuity is gone and the focus on those relationships that used to really build something the respect for the profession has, has faded so the, so I'm in this in service I've got my earbud in my ear I'm the you know with the, the hair down from the behind you have to do it behind so that they can't see the, the cord my students told me um, <laughs> and, and and I'm listening to Beethoven to keep my blood pressure down and there's a, a sheet that was handed out, and it's it's called 15 Fixes for Broken Grades. This is this was in October, I think. Um, and this one got me the most. If a child plagiarizes, it's not their fault. Teach them how to do it properly. Now, yeah. It's against the law. Right. No, no, no. no, no just that, 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 that admonishment itself. Right. If a child plagiarizes, teach them how to do it properly first. There's the overall concept that you're assuming, you're insulting me by saying I've never taught them how to avoid plagiarism. Right. That's one. Mm-hmm. So it's my fault, not the students. That, that okay. Two, there's the, um, the the student, teach the student how to write the student. If a student plagiarizes, they didn't say child, they said student. And then the teach them. Mm-hmm. So you have a pronoun that has no antecedent, right? Um, and how to do it properly, how to do what? Plagiarize properly? Because that's what the sentence, that's what those two sentences are literally saying. So I, at that point, I, I didn't even care that I was in an in-service because I didn't have cell phone reception. I got up and walked outside and looked from the email that doctor uh, that I had been sent from, from Baylor and immediately went home that night and started my application process. Because I figured if the insanity was going to stop, I was ill-equipped with, even though I have 20 years of experience in a secondary classroom, and I have in-service teachers, I have taught, you know, courses specifically for English teachers, um, 
the in-service ones, not not college courses, let me be specific, and, and had student teachers in my classroom who I've been in charge of their education, no one's going to listen to me if I don't have a PhD, like outside of people who, who know my creds as a teacher. I also don't understand, I, I didn't study education. I, you know, erroneously apparently thought that if I'm teaching English, I should be a master of my subject, mm-hmm. which is why that's what I got my degrees in. And the reason it's a PhD instead of an EDD is because a PhD is, is more academic. Mm-hmm. The credibility uh, is higher. The cl- It's for clout, basically. And then EDD is more practical application within like administration and things like that. And that's not my interest. The reason that we know each other is you were actually my master teacher for my master of arts in teaching. That's something that we've talked about quite a bit is that there is, there is a huge difference between the art of teaching and the science of teaching. And they Correct. do need to work together. You've also mentioned it varies based on the individual teacher. So good teaching for, and that's even within subject. And again, I'm sticking specifically to secondary because that's what I know, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I've walked into classes that are not my subject. And I, you know instinctively what a good teacher is because you see students engaged. Um, now, this, the teacher might not be doing what the administration is looking for. But the administration comes in for typically 30 minutes twice a year. And the relationship, going back to the concept of relationships, that the teacher is building, the continuity of the class is is daily. It builds. It's continual. So what is done in a classroom by a teacher for, their stu- for her students or his students in the fall is tied indelibly to an outcome that that teacher is looking for in May. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not understood. And, and, and it's not looked for be, because it is a, it, it take, it's too labor intensive to go in and watch a teacher for a full year. Mm-hmm. Right. The people who know are the students. By the end of the year, the students will know. Mm-hmm. At the beginning, they may not. So what would be your, um, as, a, as a teacher, as an educator, and also as a student, how do right. you go in and assess whether your teacher is going to fit your needs? And then could you kind of say, kind of go over tactics, like if they're going to fit your needs, how to best use them, but also if they're not going to fit your needs, how to get them to meet those needs? Well, it depends on what level you're looking at as well, mm-hmm. because there's a difference. Just as in high school, there's a difference between a fr- approaching freshman students Sophomores, juniors, you know, they all have different um, approaches. In college, it's a little bit more, unless there are prerequisites, a little bit more willy-nilly. So if I'm going in and it's um, to a bachelor's level class and it's an intro class, I'm looking at is the syllabus, um, before I even get into class, I read the syllabus. Mm -hmm. And I always check for grammatical errors, right? (laughs) How easy is it to read and how articulate is the teacher? I look for the book selection and see if it's coming from one specific point of view. Then then I go in the first day of class and I see what they have us doing. Are they prepared for lecture? Which means are they actually giving me information that, that I need? On the first assignment that they give back, are they actually giving me comments that I can use? Or do they just put a score on it and say, well done? So if I have a, a professor who's not giving me what I need to learn more to grow as an individual within my field or within that subject that I happen to have to, that I'm studying, the first thing I would do is go to their office hour because students don't use office hours. So I would be at, and I've done this already at the office hour with the work in hand, asking them 
to specify why the grade was given the grade it was, what can I do specifically to improve it, how is it, um, how is it as far as the field is concerned, right, how, how, what's going on there, um, and how is it for its uh, content and grammar and structure, right, as far as what they know with other students. Um, as the class progresses, seeing if is it the same pattern every day. Um, and there's something to be said for routine. Structure coming in, knowing that, you know, you're going to have X at the beginning. And then from high school, you might come into every, every English class and have a quick write or something like that, right, a journal write. Um, and a review of homework or something. So, um, but the key is how much is the professor adding to what you're reading? Are, are they augmenting it or could I just read the book on my own and not have to come to class? Mm-hmm. How good are the, how are the discussions? The activities that we're doing in class, are they reinforcing not only my learning because not everybody learns the same, right? Are they helping me? Are they helping others as well? You know, talk to your colleagues in the class, see what's going on, see what they think. And always form a study group. Ooh, that's an excellent point. Form a study group, find somebody else who's in this with you just right. to be able to bounce ideas off of. That's crucial. There's one um, There's one other person with, with a secondary English background in my cohort, and he and I took an independent study this summer together. It was invaluable having him to talk with. And we have a book chapter that's going to be published in the fall that we're going through. Now we finally have the edits to do, so we'll get to those. And, and ideas are just better when there's more than one. And if, you, if nobody's started a study group you be the person who started i can speak from experience that it's hard to be like i'm going to start the study group but in this day and age it's easy to do it on facebook like pretty much everybody's on facebook you just make a facebook page and you say let's do this um right with your so you went straight through you basically plowed through school and then you took you know you actually used your degree for 19 ish years right yeah and it wasn't my intent to be a teacher Right. That was not. So let's I'm not one of those people who's like, oh, I want to be a teacher. There's so many and I applaud them for it. But um, or I want to help the children. I didn't care about helping the children. Mm -hmm. It was like it was a job. I owed money back on a scholarship and it happened to be a good fit. And I really liked it. So then I cared about helping the children. My job was to prepare them to be young adults and to be an adult. So I called my students by their last name because I looked so young that I you know, and they're not calling me by my first name. So it was always Miss Cobbett, right? Uh, Mr. Chow, those type of things. Uh, and they rose to that particular level, like, um, which causes going back to how do I get teachers to pay it? You know, what approach do I take? Always respectful in the approach. Mm -hmm. But if there's a question, ask it. And if you don't feel comfortable asking it in front of everybody, like I had a professor last semester, there was an issue of, um, we disagreed politically, which should never come into play, but in college it does. Mm -hmm. So I didn't talk to her about it in front of, in front of my classmates because I didn't feel that I felt she might think of it as a threat or a challenge. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want that. So I asked her the question in her office, go, go talk to them when you have questions, ask them and asking in person will almost always get you more cred than asking them on email Mm -hmm. because then you can explain and have that interaction. Mm -hmm. And you can see face, facial expression, you, you can see tone. So when you were going to Baylor, like what made you choose Baylor outside of them specifically recruiting you? I, I didn't look anywhere else. I, I was at a point in my career where I had already secured a job at a different high school. So it was either move to a different high school mm-hmm. and can remain frustrated with the system or take the opportunity to go study and earn my PhD and learn the system to figure out what I'm going to do with it. And, and Um, In retrospect, and you were one of the ones who said, you know, there are other programs. (laughs) (laughs) 
you know, um, (laughs) (laughs) you were just telling me that you were planning on doing your PhD a little bit early, like getting done in December rather than in May. And I was just wondering how you're structuring your time now that you you've kind of gotten into the groove of the PhD thing. And so how are you structuring, um, your time so that you can get stuff done well and ahead of time? I, I need a physical outlet. All right. I understand now why professors, doctors, why they run, um, high intensity jobs because it just re- revamped. So I go in and play racquetball mm-hmm. with the wall <laughs> in the morning um, for 15 to, and it usually about 20 to 30 minutes. Um, if I'm really needing it and I'm not working out later that day, I do it for 45 and just boom, boom, boom. Um, getting on the routine calendar is essential. Following that calendar is essential. Figuring out, prioritizing what those needs are. Um, now I know you like a bullet journal. I love a bullet journal. Right. I, I don't. Right. I, now, granted, I haven't used it. I've looked at it. I've assessed it. And I'm like, not yet. I need something more structured. Mm-hmm. So um, found a great calendar at Target of all places. And it and so I'm, I jot down everything. Like, what am I doing that week? What do I hope to do that week? And then I stick to that calendar. And I have said to people, I, you have, I'm done. I have, it's, it's, I'm now on to the next thing. Um, and it's really holding myself accountable to that time. Uh, I've blocked out what my courses are going to be in the fall. So the schedule that I'm on now, I haven't, my, my courses are at night mostly, which is an anomaly mm-hmm. and hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a class, for example, Monday nights, I will be in class from five forty-five to eight thirty. Right. You're going to have to be like eating power bars in order to stay awake. To stay awake, which throws your schedule off because I shouldn't have to stay awake that late, right? So we'll see how that goes when I get there. But it's a measurements class and I really want it. So you said you have your your next semester schedule all mapped out. So you're already living that schedule? I have starting two weeks ago. Um, I get get up at 6. I have the alarms. I'll reset my alarm for 6 in the morning tomorrow. And I do it on the weekends as well. So I get up early. Coffee's on. um, And I'm weaning myself to the 5.30 a.m. wake up because our gym opens at 6. I get up, go to the gym. I come back um, or or I go to school, depending on what day it is, and do grad work. Next week, I'll start with that window where I'm working. I'll actually go into school and do some reading and do some work on my own or, or type out the, uh, some interviews that I have to transcribe so that I will be physically away from my house during those hours of, of school. School starts on the 21st. And so by the time the 21st comes, I'll been on the schedule for two weeks already. So what does your homework, like how do you structure homework? That's a little bit different. Like I work best in the morning. Uh, it's, it's really because of the amount of, of obligations that I have to class and to graduate work, it's, it's a fill in the gaps. Typically as well, I do a lot of stuff on the weekends. My classes are such that I have most of Thursday free, um, most of Friday free, and all of, the, all of Saturday and Sunday. So that's when I do my homework. So then knowing that, you look ahead in your syllabus and say, okay, I have this project, this project, this project, and this is exactly how much time I have. So I take a, um, a, a, a huge laminated piece of paper mm-hmm. and I sticky, I have different colored sticky notes for each class and I have, you know, different, and then I have a completely different color sticky note for when big assignments are due. Okay. 
So not only do I write it in my calendar, but I, I make a, a list. And so Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday on the top of the piece of paper. And then I color code, I write down all the assignments and I stick them up there. Okay. And then by week, and then I can pull those off as I go. Pull them off when they're done? When they're done. Okay. Yeah. Cross them out, pull them off, whatever I need to do. And so I can phys- I can visualize getting to the end. So I have my homework assignments up. I have when the big projects are due. And that lets me organize where my time needs to go. And do you also, like, I know that sometimes this is helpful to people. Sometimes it's not. Do you write, like, how much time you think it's going to take you on there? You know, I never have. I think I have an in- I have an internal sense of what it's going to take me. At this level, a lot of it's research. Yeah. So everything I read and everything I have read, I use, um, this is a great program. It's free. It's Zotero.org. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's like a bib, a bib reference, bib work, but um, the librarians are going to that particular system. I've never used one before. I like it because it automatically allows me to put a little thing on my browser. I don't know what it is, but when I pull up a document that I like, it changes. If I can use it, it changes something that looks like a little piece of paper. I click it. It automatically downloads any PDF attachments along with the reference into my Zotero account. See, that's just a step above because I was thinking like Evernote kind of works that way where you can have it downloaded and you can keep track of all these things. But that actually sounds like it puts it in a format that you can then reference. Right. It puts it in a format that I can reference. I can add notes to it. I can add tags to it. I can also set up if you're on Zotero as well. We can share a reference mm. folder or create a reference that both of us can access. So if we're working on papers together and we're not in the same space. Study group. <laughs> study group, right? It's a brilliant way to do it. Um, and, and you learn so much when you're going that way. So the, like, what do you love about learning? Because Jessica and I were talking about the fact, the reason that we both went to so much school and yeah. she would go back and just be a student if she could. Like, right. What is it about learning that that keeps you, or or what keeps you coming back? Well, usually getting pissed off keeps me coming back. <laughs> we all have different motivations. <laughs> that was, you know, my motivation the, the the first time around was was because I had a deadline, and I wasn't going to say that I'd worked for six years to not have a master's at the end of it. Right? Mm-hmm. It's discovering something new, and. And real for, for me with literature, it's it's the ability to show how we are all connected. We are not so different from, from each other, right? Through those particular stories, um, I love the teaching of them because the students, I didn't tell them what to think, but I could ask them questions. And they would come every year I taught. I, I must have taught The Great Gatsby at least, at, let's say I taught for 19 years, let's go 20 I must have taught and read The Great Gatsby over 30 times, easily. Easily. Mm -hmm. Easily. And I learned from every single time, from every single class, something different about the perspective of that particular novel. And and everything that I read, I was greedy. I wanted to learn. And that, and my students taught me. If someone comes to you and says, Amanda... I'm ready to do it. I'm ready to go into my PhD program. Uh-huh. I I have picked out five schools that I'm going to apply to. What are the dig deep questions that you would start asking me? Like, how would you start making sure that I'm ready for to, to take the plunge? Well, 
the first thing I would ask is why, uh, you know, and what do you expect to get out of the PhD that you can't get another way? So, and I think that depends on what PhD you're going for, you know, and, and then where do you see the PhD leading you? So I would ask, you know, what's your, what's your purpose? Because that would determine on whether or not you're going into what you really need. And I would also have you write down the timeline because it differs. My program, I, I received my fellowship for four and a half years with the option to extend it for another year. The questions I would have you ask and look for in the answers are one that I didn't think of to ask here because I just came, was the idea of how long has the program been going on? What are the philosophies of the professors you're going to be working with? Because knowing that is important. And what's the diversity on the department? I'm talking philosophical diversity. Mm-hmm. They do, do they offer counter thought, right? Which is, I think, also key for a rich environment. Uh, and I would check with the current doctoral students to find out how they, and I would look online because that will tell you a lot. NYU has their doctoral students listed online. Gives you an idea, right, of where that of where that is. But I would have never thought to look at that. And there was a course I took last semester that had me doing stuff like that. So that was interesting. Those are excellent things to look at. What if I can't answer why I want to do it and why I like I just want a PhD? Do you suggest still going? I would say no. I would say go get. I would say go go get some work experience. You know, go 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 explore a little bit because a PhD is a, is a lot a, a huge chunk of your time. It's a very niche program, a degree. I once was sitting on the bus with a Marianne Moore expert. I think was sitting next to her, and I, I told her I was thinking about a PhD, and she said, "Choose the school where the person you want to study with works. Make certain that they're willing to take you under their wing." But yeah, that that would be it. Find out really who you want to study with, and then. And because again, the time commitment is immense. But if you're just thinking of it, and I want a PhD to have a PhD, because it's this is the hardest, hardest thing that I've ever had to do, academically speaking. And on the one hand, it you think that it should be obviously it's PhD, it's the highest level of education that you can achieve. But then on the other hand, like really, this is harder than 140 <laughs> freshmen. <laughs> One year, I had 220 students on my roll book. This is harder than that. All right. So if you could, if you could sum up your two to five tips for someone looking at a at getting a PhD or even any higher education thing, what is your what is your soundbite? What is your all encompassing tips? Choose what you love to study. I think that's key. Have a purpose to your study because. at a PhD level, there has to be a reason. Like, what is it that you're investigating? And always remember the bigger picture. Academia is a bubble. There's a reason it's been called the ivory tower for you know centuries. Connect to the outside world, because if if what you study doesn't get beyond the borders of the conferences and the publications and 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 other academics, then what's the purpose? Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. I'm so glad that we got to do it. And I and I think the research that you're doing is so important. And I'm glad that you're the one doing it because I know your passion and I understand how, like, I just know that you're going to rock the world of education. I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping it's, you know, it's going to be one of those, uh, one of those things, you know, what, what's, what's the motto? Fuck fear. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's the motto. That's the that's mantra. The <laughs> that's the mantra. That's right. So we're going to we're going to get this done and and see if we can uh, make a change, you know. All right. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. <laughs>
Side note, actually, I am writing a play about gambling for the election of the Pope in the during the Italian Renaissance because mm-hmm. um, it's very really interesting. Like, there's just so much stuff that went on in the gambling world. I am reading all this stuff about the papacy, and I didn't realize that the purpose of universities, the universities were created by the papacy in order that they could create men who had enough um, learning in and the ways of the legal legalities of the church and create standardizations mm. that they could strengthen their um, legal uh, authority throughout, uh, well, wherever they were, like Western Europe, the quote-unquote Holy Roman Empire as it was falling apart. And so the, the whole university system as we know it is based in church, Huh. learning and we get being a well-rounded person be, so that you can be an authority on all topics and then middle-class people which there were not many in the middle ages or whatever however you whatever term you want to use for that time they there were not many but if you were like if you were a merchant class or whatever you might send your kid to college um and then at the end of their years there, they were expected, quote unquote, to take their orders, to take their um, their vows and to become a priest. But many just after a while just didn't. They were like, oh, I just I wanted to just learn some stuff. So I came here. And so that's how uh, it started to be that the authorities started to move away from the church and religion and go into the secular society in to the hierarchical monarchies at, because they then had educated people in their realm that could help make legal challenges against the church or just, you know, help help rulers rule because they knew about history or they knew about religion or the laws of quote unquote of religion or whatever. So that so that's actually why it's called investiture when you get your diploma because you're that's when you are become vested with your investments mm-hmm. when you become a priest. Hmm. Um, so that's the origin of that word. And that's why everybody wears those black robes and those funny hats. So you're basically wearing priest robes when you are graduating. So I did get my, I did become a minister. <laughs> you did. You totally did. Yes. <laughs> I've, I've invested, invested, invested. <laughs> but it's like you're doing it on your own too. Like you just decided to study the papacy to uh, probably, cause you probably decided to write the play because you're interested in gambling and the papacy. Like. That, I mean, they go, which one came first, you know? But, uh, yeah, it is a... It, it, education has exponentially increased even since I was in school, like, 10 years ago. Yeah. And so I couldn't... Uh, I just got out of my last degree, and Aubrey just got out of her last degree at at a point where it was like, oh my God, should we even be doing this? Like, should we even be trying to pay for this? Should we even be trying to take out more loans? Like, when are, when is this really going to end? And we got to the end of it, and it feels so... It feels so far away. Like, trying... Like, 
we're obviously able to take care of our loan payments. That That is not something... We didn't price ourselves out of our loan payments. Let me just put it that way. But That's good. But, I mean, that that's a pitfall that you can fall into. Um, but it's also, like, looking at that number, it's so unimaginable that we're ever going to pay for it. Yeah, it's so expensive. Everything is so expensive for education now. Like, even to go to conventions and to sort of keep up your, you know, day-to-day work sk- skills. You know, seminars are like 500 or a 1000 or $1,500. And I guess, you know, when you add it up, like, it makes sense that teacher, you have to pay for the, the building, the water, the person that brings you the water and puts the ice in it. But <laughs> uh, crap, like, that's a ton of money. <laughs> so there is some speculation about how much a school actually needs to be making in order to function. Because yes, you need to have, you know, a building and grounds and you need to pay your teachers and all that stuff. But the the teachers are not getting the money that the students are forking over. Like oh, that really? is just clearly not happening. So yeah, at some point, at some point it would be nice to, to get some sort of a study on how much someone actually needs to be paying in order to get an education versus how much they're being charged. That That is something that someone should look into. <sighs> but, okay, so, mm, all right. Higher education at ambassador moment. The things that you need to look at, if you are really, really considering higher education at any level, like, obviously, please graduate high school. Like, as a as a former high school teacher... And possibly a future high school teacher, I have to say there's nothing that is there's nothing stopping you from getting your your high school education. Please go do that. And even if you did if you didn't do it or you you didn't want to at the time, like you can always get your GED and that'll that'll help you out in life. But if you are ready to take the step into some sort of higher education, please be very, very ready because no matter what it's going to cost you something. Like, there is a price tag attached. There's no such thing as a free college education. You can get as many loans as you want. It, it like there's st- It's still going to cost something. So be very, very ready. Also, take advantage of going to school in the state that you are a resident in because it'll be cheaper. Also, take advantage of community college classes because they'll be cheaper and they're the same classes. Trust me, the teacher who works at the high school also works at the community college, also works at the university in town. They are the same exact human being because teachers don't make enough money. So they have to work all three places. So you're getting the same education, possibly from the same person. So take advantage of the community college classes. And then are you really willing to, if you are looking into higher education or if you're in a family sort of situation, are you willing to put yourself and family through it? They're going to have to support you to some degree, especially if it's your spouse or something because it's a huge time and energy. It's a full-time job. Like you have to treat it like a full-time job. And then you have to know exactly what you want to study. It's a complete 
don't fall into the pitfall that I fell into. It's a complete myth that you can just like, oh, I'm just going to pick a school and I'm just going to go into it and I'll just study whatever for a couple of years and then I'll choose a major. Don't do that. It's a waste of time. They t- they're telling you that to keep you in school for longer. Go to school with a plan in mind. Think about it. Take advantage of the cheap stuff. But realize that all of this is investing in yourself. Like if you are making, putting all of your money into your brain, like you're never going to lose that money. You're feeding your brain and you're making your, basically you're making yourself more marketable. You're making yourself more able to get a job. And then ask yourself, are you like Jessica? Do you love homework? And then, and then if you can answer all of those questions really, really honestly, you'll know whether or not you're ready to go on to higher education. Here, here. So for this week's grilled cheese engine recipe section, I want to talk about just really quick, non-traditional cheese sandwiches, because I am gluten-free. And so sometimes it's difficult to, uh, well, back in the day, not so much now, but back in the day, it was really difficult to find gluten-free bread. And uh, so consequently, um, I did not eat a lot of grilled cheese. However, um, I would go as much as possible to any Mexican restaurant that was really cool with their corn tortillas. And so I am super into corn tortilla quesadillas and corn tortilla burritos and corn tortilla tacos. And lately I have gotten into just grating some cheese and um, putting, taking out a tiny little frying pan and putting a little corn tortilla in it, getting it a little burned and uh, bubbly. The outside of the tortilla starts to rise and bubble up, like it starts to get air because of the heat. Mm -hmm. And then you flip it over and um, those bubble parts get a little bit brown And um, it sort of makes them a little bit crispy and a little more buttery. And then you put the cheese on it. It melts. And then you get that a little bit seeps out and becomes kind of crispy. And then you fold it. And then you put it on your plate. Then you make five more. And then you have a snack. And it is (laughs) so awesome. And you have to eat it right there. And it's so much better to do it in the pan than it is to do it in the microwave. But you can do it in the microwave if you don't really want to take the little frying pan out. We use a little omelet frying pan, so it's just the right size. And it is fantastic. Thanks to CreditKarma.com and Cheese On Demand. I mean, they aren't actually the sponsors, but we like them. Thanks to Jacob and Aubrey for their support of our changeable dream. Thanks to our guest Amanda for talking to us and all of her insights. Thanks to Scott Haskin for his music and thanks to Cassie, our producer for Cracking the Whip and for all the cool art for the Grilled Cheese Engine. If you like this podcast, please review us on iTunes and we will give you a great big consensual interweb hug. You can also email us your questions at grilledcheeseengine at gmail.com. And follow us on our website, www.grilledcheeseengine.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Grilled Cheese Gin, G-R-I-L-L-E-D-C-H-E-Z-G-I-N, Pinterest at Grilled Cheese and Gin, Facebook, Grilled Cheese and Gin, and also we now have an Instagram. It is Grilled Cheese and Gin, but 
the cheese is spelled C-H-E-Z because some dude has our grilled cheese and gin. So it's G-R-I-L-L-E-D-C-H-E-Z-A-N-D-G-I-N. And that's on Instagram. Also, each of us are starting up our individual podcast shortly. Keep an ear out for info about those. And join us next week when we talk about home buying and interview L.A. realtor Teresa Ryan. This episode is brought to you by Cheese on Demand, the app where you can request cheese delivery. And in 10 minutes or less, someone will bring you a chunk of delicious cheese right to your door. Unfortunately, this app does not exist yet, even though we talked about it in our last episode. Get on it, app makers. Come on. Where's our cheese app? (laughs) (laughs) Want it. Want it. Want it. it. I want cheese on demand. (laughs) 